This sermon, God's Together People, was preached by Lynn Baird on Sunday, November 21st, 2021 at Sovereign Grace Church. Let's go to the Word of God. That's what you're here for. So let's turn to Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. You are, as you are all aware, in a series on the book of Acts, and uh, it's a great book to be going through on a regular basis, to be studying and understanding what has God wrought, what an amazing thing God has done. And you were served so well by Brett last week as he talked about the message, the sermon that kicked it all off, that just like got that ball in play, and now things are rolling, folks. Things are moving. God's doing some amazing things, and it begins right here in this passage with God's people as they come together, or as I call it, God's together people. Let's read this passage, and then we'll pray. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were calling their possessions and belongings, selling their possessions and belongings and distributing them, the proceeds to all who had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, Breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Lord, we, we do come in awe before your word. Lord, this is not me. This is not some guest speaker, this is your word. And we come and bow our hearts and humble ourselves before this precious word. And we trust you to use it to minister and help us in our daily walk today. Fill us fresh with your spirit for your glory. Help me in my weakness to share something that will be helpful to each soul here today who receives from you in a unique way that not everyone would. Lord, you know every heart. You know every need here today. You know every, the, the state of each soul. Would you come minister to each individual for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in a summary kind of a statement, you could, I would say it this way, what we're going to talk about is when you are in awe of God and the gospel, you can't help but be together to experience God's grace. If that awe of God and the gospel is in you, you, you can't keep yourself from being together as a people. How many of you have ever been to the, the Grand Tetons? Anybody? There's a few hands up here and there. Well, the Grand, the Grand Tetons, they're called Grand because they are Grand. We're driving, my wife and I were driving through the middle of Wyoming heading for the Tetons, and we've been aware, we've heard that these, these are pretty awesome, so we're, we're looking forward to this, and we're driving through the middle of nowhere. I mean, this is all cow country for miles upon miles, and then you start seeing some mountain ranges. And I remember thinking to myself, we'd come to a mountain range, and I'd think, oh, maybe that's it. 
that's pretty awesome. No, that wasn't it. No, I don't think so. So we keep going. And once again, I'd, I'd say to Terry, there it is again. I, th- I think that must be it. And no, that, that, that wasn't it. And then at some point, we came over this rise. And all of a sudden, out in the distance, the Tetons, those three peaks, rose up out of the ground 15,000 feet. And it was like, oh, I think we just came on the Tetons. This is amazing. It was awesome. And in a sense, it just almost took my breath away. Now, let me ask you another question. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon? Everybody's arms go up. Here, you're in Arizona. If you haven't been there, shame on you. You need to get there. The Grand Canyon is awesome, but it's different. The Grand Canyon, you drive to it, and you don't like come over a rise and go, oh my gosh, look. No, you just keep going. You drive up. You get a little bit higher. Then you go through Flagstaff. It's all beautiful. Then you get up higher, and then it's kind of flat, and then you get to the, it's just like you don't see anything. But when you get to the edge, and you look out over that canyon, awe fills your heart. You look at that, and you just think, that's awesome. But you know what's awesome about the Grand Canyon? Hiking through it. I've, I've hiked through it on a few occasions, backpacked through it. And I mean, you go through it, and suddenly your awe just expands. You think, this is, this is amazing, this place. And one end is one way and another, and it's just amazing, and it's awesome. And it produces that awe in your heart. This is much like the picture of the early church that we're going to look at here today. We look at a distance, and we can see from a distance it looks awesome, this picture that we just read, it just like stirs your heart, but there's also getting up close and going down to it, down inside it, and finding out what was really going on in this church, what was going on in the hearts of these people, and how majestic and beautiful it is. Now, here's the challenge. The challenge is you take a close look at the church today, and I, mean, I don't mean your church, I mean the church broadly, and you suddenly look out there and you think, well, it's a bit discouraging. I don't have a sense of awe when I look over the church at large. You see so many things going on. A, a poll that was mentioned by R.C. Sproul said that fit majority, 50% plus of those who identified themselves as born-again Christians believe you get to heaven by good works. These are people who identify as born-again Christians. A vast number believed in reincarnation. People that confess to being born-again Christians. More than half said that there were more ways to get to God than Christ alone. Now that's kind of the state of the church out there today, and it's not necessarily a pretty picture, and I dare say it's not awe-inspiring. So here we come to the description of the beginning of this church. We have in chapter 2, as we saw last week as Brett shared, We saw Peter preach this gospel message. 3,000 people get saved. Now, out of 3,000 people, you've got to remember this is a festival time. So out of these 3,000 people, there were probably a couple of hundred thousand people here. This is a large one. They had festivals. They were big. And 3,000, which is big, that's, that's a good altar call, I bet you, Derek. Would love to have an altar call like that. Tim brings that. Okay, so 3,120 people total at this time. The Lord added them. So we're assuming they're not nominal, like I just described. These are genuine 
believers. And the, these believers had, had not understood what the church was. They'd heard the word probably ecclesia, which is the word in Greek that means church. But that, ver, that word is not used in this passage. The word ecclesia doesn't show up here, even though some versions will say they were added to the church, those who were being saved. It's not there. The Greek word, Greek word used is a Greek phrase that Luke uses, and he uses this Greek phrase, epitaata, epitaata. And what it means basically is it's, it's translated together, but it means to the same. That's the literal translation, to this number. Bringing together is what it means. And he uses that phrase twice in this quick passage. They didn't know what the church was, but they instinctively knew what they were to be. This passage is a description of that early church at the beginning. And one of the primary effects of receiving this amazing gospel was they couldn't help but be together. They had to be identified together as a people of God. So I want to take a look. I want to take us up to the edge and let's look over and let's see what this church looked like. And I want to break it down into four things. They celebrated God's Word and the Gospel. They were in awe. They were together. And all of that produced a result. So let's look at these four things together. And I suggest to you that nothing has changed for us in the church today. First of all, they, they celebrated God's Word and the Gospel. Notice the first thing that happens here in verse 42. He says, and they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to God's Word. And you say, that, what's the, the apostles' teaching? What they are saying right here is what is later written down in the canon of Scripture and what we have with us here today. This, this is the apostles' teaching. These are these men who are sharing these things that will later be written down. So they are devoted. They are devoted to the apostles' teaching. This is, the, the Greek word means steadfastly continuing in. They are just hungry for this word. We see it here, this importance of God's word. Brett pointed out last week that as Peter was preaching, he was he was quoting the Old Testament scriptures. He was highlighting the scriptures to bring them back to, this is what God has been saying all along. Here's the word of God from, from the Old Testament that brings us to this point. And now what they are sharing is to be inscripturated. They were steadfastly continuing this. They knew that this was the primary source of their life, primary source of their sustenance. I remember back in the 70s when there was a powerful move of the Spirit of God and, and how I ended up getting into pastoral ministry in the first place. But I remember receiving the Holy Spirit, much like you see these, these believers here in, the, in Acts chapter 2 receiving the Holy Spirit. And God came and filled me. I spoke in tongues and it was just an awesome experience. But you know what the amazing thing that happened to me? The first thing that happened to me was a hunger for the Word of God, a fresh hunger. I really, I went immediately out and bought a New American Standard Bible, first time in my life that I'd ever read anything but the King James Version. I, I felt like I had to backslide to read, to read the Bible. You know, I was like, 
wow, this is, this is so good. I'm so hungry. I'd received the Spirit, and where I had never not seen the Spirit in the New Testament at all, suddenly the Holy Spirit is everywhere. The Word of God came alive to me. That's what happens when these folks came to Christ. They were hungry for God's Word. They loved to study Scripture. They, they, as Peter said, they longed for the pure milk of God's Word. R.C. Sproul says this, there is no such thing as a spirit-filled Christian who does not study the Word of God. He goes on to say, the first sign of a spirit-filled church is one where the spirit-filled people do not flee from Scripture and seek a substitute for it, but are driven to it to have their spiritual lives rooted and grounded in the Word of God. That's what we see happening here, this awesome picture. They're listening to the apostles' teaching. It's the basis of everything they do now. It's the indicative for every imperative in their life. It's the foundation for all that followed. It's the motive behind the mandate. Obedience and action are an immediate response to the grace of God in the gospel. And that's not an easy thing in our culture. Now, they had their own issues back in their culture. There's nothing as... Ecclesiastes, Solomon would have said, there's nothing new under the sun. They were facing some serious issues, but we're, we're, we're facing some issues in the body of Christ today where the Word of God is being, being undermined in many ways. Just imagine some of the things. Only, only things that only a decade ago were without question are now under attack. Titus 2 tells us that the grace of God came to train us to live upright and godly lives in this present age. That's what the Word of God does. It comes to train us, God's grace. And you look at the areas that we're being bombarded in, in sexual ethics and the loosening of the moral fabric today, things that were unthinkable 10 years ago are accepted as true and widely practiced even in the church gay marriage, transgender issues, having a boy in the girl's bathroom. These are things that you couldn't have imagined, yet here they are. How do they get there, even in the church? A lack of understanding and love for the Word of God. Roles in marriage. <laughs> you, you, could, you, could, you could really get some evil eye, stink eye, just by teaching that there are God-given roles in marriage. Roles in ministry. We've taken a beating over and over because we believe what the Scripture teaches about male leadership in the church, and yet it's under attack today. Godly communication, <laughs> social media, slander, gossip. Try telling anyone today that they should really go and confront someone first privately before they do anything publicly. You'd be, you'd be laughed at. Are you kidding Facebook is the place to go to confront people and create division and strife. But these people, they're devoted to God's Word. But secondly, we see some other things. And all of these rest of these things grow out of this love for God's Word. They were devoted to fellowship. So they celebrated the grace of God by fellowshipping with one another, marked by joy and peace and love. It was grounded in this good doctrine, and it grew out of their love and practice for the truth. This fellowship was a result. 
They, they express the one another's to one another, love one another, encourage one another, bear with one another, on and on through the New Testament, 30, over 31 one another's in Scripture that we're called to do. This is what fellowship is, doing this, doing life together in this way. It says next that they were devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, there's a, a little article there before breaking of bread where it says, the breaking of bread. Your translation probably says that. It's clearly there in the Greek. And so he's not just talking about any of breaking of bread. He's talking about communion. He's talking about the Lord's Supper. They came together to celebrate what Jesus had done. Now, keep in mind, this isn't a, a round tray with little plastic things in it. No, they, they didn't have any of that. They'd, they were just trying to emulate what Jesus did himself in saying, remember this. Remember my body. Remember my blood. And so they were just remembering. And they knew that that, that remembering had an effect on their relationships together. They were devoted. Same Greek word. They were steadfastly continuing and honoring the Lord through the breaking of bread. They were used to having dinner together. That was culturally, that was what they did back then. Having dinner together, even outside the church, that was just a common thing. Uh, and, they, and they celebrated early on, they celebrated their communion with a meal also. But it was all rooted in the fact, it was a visual demonstration of the gospel. They were celebrating the grace of God. It made it a uniquely Christ-centered church. Everything focused around Christ and the gospel. Next, it says they were devoted to the prayer. Once again, that little article shows up, and so he's not just talking about kind of a general pray or private prayers. He's talking about prayer in the local church our public times of prayer when we gather together. And so he's saying they were devoted to this, the prayers. They, and this is not to minimize your private prayer. You need to be praying regularly. But God, these people were praying together. Uh, John MacArthur said, prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. See, prayer doesn't undermine the sovereignty of God. For somehow, in the mystery of God's plan, he said, I want you to pray, and I'll move in response to your prayers. Even though I'm sovereign, I'm omnipotent, does he need prayer? No, but he designed it so that prayer moves his omnipotence. And the early church relentlessly pursued divine, divine help, moving divine omnipotence. And then look again. Down in verse 45, we see they cared for each other. They celebrated this glorious gospel, the grace of God, this thing that was causing them to be in awe, and they were caring for each other. This, these all build on each other, and they're not teaching communism or socialism, but generosity. These people gave because they wanted to and because they loved to. They instinctively knew what would later be in Scripture, that God loves a cheerful giver. 
watching for needs, making our goods and services available, serving one another, bearing one another's burdens. Please, folks, don't, don't ever get tired of serving that single mom or that, that mom that needs uh, meals after a child is born. Don't, don't ever tire of serving that single mom who needs help around the house to keep things up while she is working and trying to raise a child. Don't ever tire of looking for needs out there and saying, how can I be the one that meets that need? Instead of calling Pastor Derek and saying, hey, by the way, you guys at the church, you ought to take care of Fred. There's something going on. No. Go take care of Fred. That's what the church did back then. That's what it was all about for them. So they celebrated God's Word and the gospel. But also, number two, Point number two, they were in awe of God. The Greek word there is phobos, where we actually get our, our English word phobia. We, they, they were in a holy terror, is another definition giving to that in the lexicon, related to the divine presence. They were in awe of God. They were in awe of this gospel of grace. Now keep this in mind. These people were, were the ones that were at the cross these people were in Jerusalem, many of these people, maybe not all of them, but many of these people were actually there when Jesus was crucified. They were watching this whole thing going on. So they understood what was happening. But these people, you know where they all came from? In one sermon, they would go from being smug, arrogant, self-righteous mockers at the cross to broken desperate, humbled people confronted by the risen king. You talk about awe. They're looking back and they're saying, I was, I was there. I stood there from a distance watching this guy die, watching his blood drain down the cross. And I was mocking in my heart, yeah, what a Messiah, whatever they said. Look at this. Look at, look at the way he ends up mocking in their hearts, and yet now they come, and as Brett pointed out last week, they exalted, in verse 36, they exalted the Lord as Christ. Something happened in their hearts, folks. It went from mocking to an awe that God would save me, the one who stood at the foot of that cross as I did. Oh, it was a, it was a challenging Time and they were being filled with the presence of God. The message of Christ had changed them. The more you grasp the gospel, the more awe it will produce in your soul. Awe that He would choose to save you. That's by far the greatest miracle. Think about it. Colossians 1.13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His dear Son. Or in 1 Peter 2 where He says, you were called out of darkness into His glorious light. Sometimes I think we, we love to think about the light and the, the, the stuff that would transform into the kingdom of His Son. We forget what He called us out of. <laughs> we forget who we really were. They were freed from works righteousness to a work of grace. As Brett said last week, before the gospel is a command to be obeyed, it's a message to be received. These people had received a message, and it wasn't a new list of rules. It wasn't a new list of commandments, but it was a man, Christ Jesus, the righteous, risen King. They had faith. They came with faith in Christ. 
freed from rules, freed from all the stuff that they were supposed to be doing, and it produced awe in their hearts. Just think of yourself and some of the people you know who are saved, and it'll produce awe. I think of Derek. Now, I'm not saying that to mean Derek. We were just on a motorcycle ride up in Utah last two months ago, and while we're up there, Derek had each of us giving our testimonies. And I was listening. I've heard Derek's testimony before, but to listen to it again and to hear what he was like, I forgot what a lousy guy he was. It, and, and he's going through the story again, and then he's talking about how, how Donna's influence as she got saved first and influence in him. I forgot what a great gal she was. <laughs> the reality is, it was incredible that God would save him in that situation. And you look around you, and the other stories, Scott's and others that I heard, Mark, other guys on that trip, listen, it should produce awe in your heart. Get testimonies from other people. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians one twenty-six. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you. This is, this is humble time here. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing those things that are, so that no human being can boast in the presence of God. Did you see what Paul just did? Paul went from saying, not many, to not any. Not, he starts with, not many of you are wise. And you think, well, yeah, but maybe I was a little bit. No, he's, finally he says, but God chose the foolish. It's not, no longer many, it's there's not any that are worthy of this calling. He chose sinners. He chose to bestow his love on sinners. This is, this is incredible. This is all inspiring to this people. And this awareness of all led to an awareness of his present working power among them. Oh, God, the, what you have done for us is awesome. I had the privilege of working with a transgender woman who uh, about two years ago, well, we were reaching out over a long period of time. A family in the church befriended her across the street. And as I, this woman started asking questions of them about the gospel, and I got involved, came and had meals, ministering, touching, praying, drawing, trying to be very careful how you say things. You know, you can imagine what it's like. But you know what? And, and get this, 40 years had been fully transitioned, medically, everything, for 40 years. That was unheard of 40 years ago. And yet here she is. He is talking about the gospel, wanting the gospel. And finally, I get a call one day, and she comes. She's, she's down in her house, and she's having a problem. And so I, we're able to go there, and, and we're trying to medically help her. But what ends up happening is her Confession of faith. I know who loves me, and I know who I belong to now. Incredible. Awe-inspiring. God, 
by his grace, taking someone that you might think is the hardest situation you can imagine, turning their heart around for his own glory. Finally, thirdly, third point is they were together. So this awe produced something. This awe produced this desire to be together. They faithfully met together. They couldn't keep themselves away from each other. They just loved being together. They couldn't stand not to be together. It meant that they would come and gather and do all these things we're talking about. This is that together people. Here again, Luke uses that phrase, epitaata, which means to the same, to this group of people, together. It was defining who they were. They were God's together people. They couldn't do things. Uh, Listen, this is so hard for us in America because we're so individualistic. But here's the reality. God's called you out of that individualism to live a life corporately with God's people. And they loved that. Notice what he says here in verse 45, it was day by day. <laughs> that, that kind of defines it, doesn't it? Day by day, every day there was some contact. Now how that looks, I don't know. But he goes on to say, look at what he says, in the temple and house to house. So in other words, they had, in some fashion or another, a large meeting, and then they met in small groups. This was actually the pattern we saw way back in the beginning of Sovereign Grace where that's become the norm in our churches. Meet together, meet in small groups where you're doing all of these same things. Day by day. In the temple they met. You know, you might wonder, well, where did 3,100 people get? Well, keep in mind, the the court of the Gentiles was built to hold around 200,000 people, one commentator said. It was a big place. It was there because they did these festivals. The church just gathered. Now, I don't, I don't know how that looked and how it worked, but it says they were together in the temple. Then it says they went house to house. This has got to be our commitment as people of God. The writer of Hebrews tells you to consider one another, how you may stir one another up. And then he goes on to say, not neglecting to meet together. So in other words, coming together as a people is meant to stir each other up. That's what you're here for, to stir one another up to love and to good deeds. And he says, now don't neglect that. That's one of the most important things you do as a believer. Don't come as a spectator or a consumer. It is so easy to come to church and just be a spectator, be a consumer. You just sit there and nod and you did did your duty and then you go out the door. No, don't come that way. I appeal to you. Don't come as a spectator. Come as an encourager. Come with something in your heart to stir people with. Do you pray on Sunday, if not Saturday night, and say, Lord, we're gathering. How can I be used of you tomorrow to serve people, to stir people up, to love and to good deeds. Well, what can I do, Lord? How can you use me? That's what, that's what your pastors want. They don't want to do all this work. They're not meant to do all this work. It's us together as God's people. The text here says they were glad. Joy was an earmark of what they were like. They had generous hearts. It says that word is better interpreted sincere or with simplicity. Literally, it means smooth or without stones. That's literally what that Greek word means, generous. And it, it, it implies that they came with their hearts in a right condition. Not all sh- 
rashad with, with arrogance and pride and bitterness or whatever that can make our hearts rough when we get together with each other, but smooth hearts. They were marked by praise. It says they praised God. There was an exuberant outlet for their meetings. So we've seen some of these majestic peaks and the, the nuances, a few of the nuances of the valleys here. But let's look at the result finally. Number four, the result. What was the result? Well, the result was maybe a little bit obvious. Should have been, should be obvious to us. And that the community was watching all this. The community was looking at this and they were going, whoa, something genuine is happening there. Something real is taking place among this people. Look at the way they're caring for one another. Look at the way they fellowship. I mean, I have meals in my home, but it's nothing like what they're doing. And what is that strange little meal they do at the end of that? I don't get that. They were having favor with the people. They were having an influence on people's lives, and the result was people were being saved. People were being converted just like they were probably just a few days before, maybe a few months before. God was adding to the church. Listen to this description. If I could take a moment to read this. This is a description by the philosopher Aristides written to the king in the second century. And he was describing what he observed in the local church. Listen to this. Now the Christians, O king, by go about and seeking have found the truth. For they know and trust in God, the maker of heaven and earth, who has no fellow. From him they receive those commandments which they have engraved in their minds and which they observe in the hope and expectation of the world to come. For this reason they don't commit adultery or immorality. They don't bear false witness or embezzle, nor do they covet what is not theirs. They honor their father and their mother. Go figure on that one. And they do good to those who are their neighbors. Whenever they are judges, they judge uprightly. They do not worship idols or make made in the image of man. Whatever they do, they whatever they do not wish that others should do to them, they in turn do not do. And they do not eat food sacrificed to idols. Those who oppress them, they exhort and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. Their wives, O king, are pure as virgins, and their daughters are modest. Their men abstain from all unlawful sexual contact and from impurity in hope of a recompense that is to come in another world. As for their bondmen, the people that are their slaves, if they had any, their women, their wives, their children, if they had any, they persuade them to become Christians, and when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. They refuse to worship strange gods, they go their way in all humility and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them. They love one another. The widow's needs are not ignored. They rescue the orphan from the person. I just read on and on, and it just, gets, it just goes on and on about all the things that these people do. In their fine, listen to this one, in their fine poverty, in their, if they find poverty in their midst, and they do not have spare food, they fast two or three days, in order that the needy might be supplied. <laughs> thought ever come into your mind before? I, I don't have food to give someone, so I guess I'll just fast two or three days, and then I'll have extra food to give. That was the norm back in this time. Every morning, an hour, they praised God for His goodness 
to them and for their food and drink and thanksgiving. And this goes on. And he finally ends it with such, O king, is the commandment given to the Christians and such is their conduct. Imagine standing on the outside viewing that and going, what is happening here? I must know what's going on here. Though it's not recorded here, it's safe to assume they were preaching God's word very clearly. We see that pattern with Peter. But these people were probably going about sharing about Jesus. But, one, but more than that, they had this powerful backup of a living example of their lives together. They found favor with the people. And the result was this. The Lord was adding to their number. People, people's lives were being changed. And they were coming in to the together people, joining with God's together people. That same Greek word is used right at the end, that same Greek phrase right at the end, epita ata. They came and joined this together group of people. They had to be together. It was who they were. So as I conclude here today, this is a picture of the earliest church. It wasn't a sinless church. We know that, right? We know that there was deceit. You read the New Testament, you see they were dealing with divisions, with doctrinal error, hypocrites, sinful human beings. Yes, there were hypocrites even in the New Testament. The only difference there is that the New Testament hypocrites fell dead in their services. <laughs> a little bit more awe coming upon the church there. But here they are. From the beginning, loving God's word in awe of God's work. And they did this together. The church is a response to the gospel. The church is the only response to the gospel where it draws them together in this kind of awesome way. This is who this people were. They couldn't stand not to be together. This must be all in the finished work of Christ. That's, that's the foundation for every bit of their awe as I have already talked about. Why is this so important? Because see, we celebrated just last month Martin Luther doing, leading a God-given reformation. Why did he have to do that? Because the church ended up becoming the focus and the gospel became obscured. And the church just became a thing that people did. And it was separated from a reality of the gospel. And God had to bring a man and many men and women to bring about a reformation, to bring it back to what it was intended to be. So what are the implications for us today? Let me just ask a few questions. Do you love God's word and sound doctrine? Are you devoted to it? Do you highly value the preaching of God's word? As the week goes on, are you thinking to yourself, oh, I can't wait to be there Sunday to hear the word of God. I just, I, I look forward to it as if it's a meal that I'm having that's sustaining my soul. 
Is it as important to you? Let me just make a point here. Find out, make sure you know who's preaching that Sunday and pray for them. Ask God, give us revelation. Give us food, Lord. We need meat to eat that we know not of. (laughs) We need your word today, Lord. Is it important to you as the food you eat to stay alive? Next, do we seek to grow in our awe of God and his gospel? Do you preach the gospel to yourself every day, a phrase Jerry Bridges made popular? Do you preach the gospel every day and remind yourself, this is who I was. I was one of the not any. I I was one of those wretched, poor, miserable ones whom God chose to pour out his love on. That's who I am. Do you look to God's word and see the awesome peaks and majestic canyons displayed before you to explore and delight in? Is that how you approach God's word? I need this. And it's got such beauty and majesty yet for me to discover. I think you could hide, hike through the Grand Canyon your whole life and never see all of it. Well, you, you think that's incredible. This word, I remember hearing one of my favorite Bible teachers says, at the end of his life saying, I feel like I've just got to the edge of the ocean and got my toe in. <laughs> that was his assessment of all, of all the learning that had gone on in his life. And I can, I can agree with that today. Do you remember what God has called you out of and into? Is it producing awe in your heart? Are we committed to being together as God's people? Is it our absolute joy and delight to be together and celebrate the gospel. Now, don't get me wrong. I know there are, you go on vacations and there's things that happen. And, you know, there's all, it's not like you can be here every Sunday. But when you're in town, is it like you're, you just desire this with all your heart? I can't wait to be with God's people. Oh, community groups coming up. What do you call them here? Community group. Whoa. A word from the Lord. You. You, are you looking at the, oh, it's coming up Thursday night. Oh, great. I can't wait to be together. Encourage. Come with a word of encouragement. Lord, give me something to give to your people. Is it our absolute joy to be here? Are you committed to being with your small group? Do we consider how we can stir each other up? All these are things we need to be thinking as we look at this. Lord, I want this passage of Scripture to be a reality in our church. But as I said, it all comes back to a response to the gospel. Let me ask you just one final question today. Is there anybody here that's lost their awe? You need to get your awe back. And you recognize there's something missing. I don't that, that sense of awe isn't there like I want it to be. Getting your awe back is a perspective problem. Like we talked about seeing how Paul described us. Not many, no, not any deserve this call. I don't care if you're the worst unbeliever out there or you're like me who was raised in a Christian home and I had very little sin to even look at and think, oh, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, as a kid, and I look back now and I say, oh, it didn't matter because that any one sin sent me to hell. 
We need our awe back. We need our, it's a perspective problem. Do you still think there must have been a little something, some reason God chose you? A wrong perspective. Pride poisons your awe. There was no reason in you. That's the point that Paul's making. That's not to beat you down and make you feel bad in one sense. I mean, in some senses it is because until you get down low enough, you don't see that you need God's grace in your life. But God chose. This is God's perspective. He chose the not any. He chose the are nots to show his love upon. As Revelation 3.17 says, he calls us wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. Those are brutal descriptions, folks. And yet, that's the person, you and I, who God chose and said, now I'm going to pour out my love on you. Folks, if that doesn't produce awe, nothing produces awe like the gospel of Jesus. To go from one being standing at the cross as a mocker to being one who has heard the word and Jesus is now Lord and King. Let's believe God to restore that sense of awe in our hearts so that everything else that happens, that that awe in God and His word will just permeate this community for God's glory.